0: Good morning I to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Earlier this morning when we were doing our sound check, I told the worship team that I really want to pull a Johnny Cash and kick all these bulbs um, on the stage. But Johnny Cash got kicked out of the the Grand Ole Opry after that, and something similar would probably happen to me if I did that. So I'm not going to do it. But we are glad you've chosen to worship with us here this morning. And I do want to thank Joshua for preaching for me last week in the book of Malachi. And one thing he failed to mention last week as he preached from that passage is that Malachi, if you didn't know this, is often known as the first Italian prophet because his name is Malachi. So if you've never. Ah, oh, there you go. That was a joke. That I didn't know how it would go over, but there you go. But I'm glad that he preached through that because it actually made complete sense with where we were going today and where we were in the weeks leading up to Malachi last week. Today we're starting a series, four-week series, through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, really focusing in on the birth of Jesus and what it is that this means for us. And, you know, there are a lot of churches out there, and I've been at churches, and I've worked at churches, and it's great that they do this. A lot of churches will use their Christmas sermon series to uh, do some sort of big campaign, do some sort of big cause. And that's definitely great, and I'm not knocking that a single bit. But really, we're not going to be doing that here. I'm sorry if that's disappointing to you, but we're just going to be looking at the story. I think there's value in just reading the story. Because we may think that we know it, but there are always things that we miss when it comes to our reading of Scripture. And then I also believe that maybe we don't know it as well as we think we do at times. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at this story. And the temptation may be to say, you know what? Well, why would we spend four weeks on the birth of Jesus? My kids can learn that in a lesson in kids' church in 15 minutes. Why are we going to be in it for four weeks Well, the answer is because I believe the birth of Jesus impacts our lives more than any of us often realize. It affects the way we do everything. The temptation might be to say, you know what? I don't understand how the birth of a Jewish baby to a lower middle class family in Israel 2,000 years ago really has any impact on how I'm going to make sure that I can pay my bills after all the Christmas presents I have to buy. And it may not seem to mean anything to the person who's trying to meet all the work deadlines before the end of the year. You may not think it means anything to you as you're trying to balance all the family responsibilities and the chaos that is your calendar when it comes to the month of December. But the truth is that this birth, if it's true, is the most earth-shattering event next to the cross and the resurrection that has ever occurred. And it has a huge impact on every single aspect of our lives. And we would do well not to take that for granted. So that's where we're going to be over the next four weeks. And Malachi led up perfectly to it because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament that is written. And it's written in about 400 B.C. The next scripture that will be written are the Gospels, 450 years later. So what's happening in that 450-year time frame? Well, there's actually a lot that's happening. In 331 BC, a guy that you may have heard of in your high school history class named Alexander the Great comes to power. And Alexander the Great was the leader of the Greek nation. And legend has it that Alexander was such an amazing leader that whenever he would come into contact with his opponents, whenever they would meet on the battlefield, he would have his own soldiers run off a cliff to their deaths, and the whole idea was that he wanted to prove to his opponents just how sold out his soldiers were to him, and that if you're fighting my soldiers, the guys that are willing to run off a cliff for me, you don't stand a chance. It was to give him a mental edge, and these men believed in Alexander the Great so much that they would do it. Now, in 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died. He died a young leader, and there's no telling how big his empire would have been had he lived longer. But after he died, there was a lot of instability in the region. There are several different empires all jockeying for position, trying to somehow take over all the land that Alexander had been in charge of. But then along comes a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes was a pagan leader and he saw the Jewish temple, the one that Ezra helped to rebuild, the one that Nehemiah helped fortify, the things we were just talking about. He saw this temple and he said, you know, that would be a great place for us to sacrifice to our gods. And some of the Jewish people said, well, if you want to do that, Antiochus Epiphanes, that's fine. I guess we can deal with it. I guess we can share the temple. But then there were some Jews who said, no, This is not okay. This is a slap in the face to us. It's a slap in the face to the temple, and it's a slap in the face to God. And one of those families that refused to take this lying down was the Maccabee family. You may have heard of the Maccabee family. So the Maccabee family came in. They took back the temple. And when they took it back, they had a day of rededication, which was then where we get Hanukkah from. That's why Hanukkah is celebrated the rededication of the temple. So everything's good, but then in 60 BC, Rome comes in. And Rome takes control, and Rome truly starts flexing their muscle. And they will be in charge for the next several hundred years, one of the greatest empires that has ever existed. And this Roman world is the world into which Jesus is born. It's the world that the gospel writers are writing in. It's the world that the New Testament Is being written in. And all of these things have been happening that lead us up to this moment. There were 400 years of what seemed like silence from God between Malachi and the Gospels. But what we see in the birth of Jesus is that God is not silent anymore. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, feel free to open to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles in the chair around you. Or feel free to look up on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we do that, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in to our Luke text. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for all that the Christmas season means. God, thank you that you have sent your son. God in the flesh. God with us to redeem us, to save us, to grant us mercy, to show us what your kingdom looks like. And God, I pray this Christmas season we will avoid the temptation to be distracted, avoid the temptation to be stressed, avoid the temptation to focus only on the material and only on the commercialization of this holiday, but God will focus on you. That every single day we will reflect more and more on what it is that this holiday truly, truly means. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your word that we're about to jump into. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every time we start a new book of the Bible here at Prairie View, you've probably known me long enough now. I've probably been here long enough now that you probably know that we always start with some background of the book. It's always important to know who wrote the book. When did they write the book? Why did they write the book? And we're going to look at that with Luke. So starting in chapter 1. So we learn quite a bit about Luke just in that one passage, but some of the things that we do know about Luke from other research and other reading is that Luke was not one of the original eyewitnesses of Jesus. He was not one of the original twelve. He is often considered to be a second-generation Christian. He was a companion of Paul, as we read in the book of Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So we know quite a bit about Luke. We know that he is not an eyewitness. He's a companion of Paul. He's a second-generation Christian. He's probably a Gentile, which means he is not Jewish, which would make him a little bit of an oddball compared to the rest of the New Testament writers. And we know who he's writing to. The person he's writing to is Theophilus. Now, Theophilus was probably a wealthy guy, probably a guy who had some power and some influence, who basically hired Luke to do some research for him. Luke is often known as an historian. And so Luke probably went around, he probably interviewed some of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. He probably interviewed some of the people who were respected teachers when it came to the life of Jesus. And so Luke writes this account, this gospel of who Jesus is. Now, he's not writing to Theophilus to win him over to Christ. Chances are that Theophilus is probably already a Christian, but he's writing that the things that Theophilus already believes might be confirmed and might be bolstered, that Theophilus can have even more confidence that this Jesus that he has come to believe in, this Jesus whom he trusts, this is the real deal. This isn't just something made up. And then finally, when it comes to when Luke is writing, he's probably writing in the late 60s A.D. Now, the significance of that, just like we talked about with the Gospel of Mark a few months back, is that Luke is writing only about 30 or 40 years after Jesus walked on the earth. Now, what that means is that Luke can't just write anything he wants. He has to be somewhat accurate about who Jesus was. He has to make sure that he's not exaggerating things. He has to make sure that he's not just making things up because there would be people still living to say, Now, wait a minute, Luke. I was with Jesus and he never said anything like that or he never did anything like that. Luke is bound by time to give an accurate portrayal of who Jesus is. He wants Theophilus to have certainty and he's giving an orderly account. So this is where we're going to be for the next four weeks. This is who Luke is. He's very tedious. He's very intentional. No wasted words with Luke. He knows exactly what he's wanting to say. He's kind of like a lawyer in a way. Lawyers always think about what they're writing. Luke is just like that. He exactly has a plan at all times. So starting in verse 5, we're going to get introduced to some of the main characters that we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks. So starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So the first two characters we meet are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they sound like a power couple. They sound great. Zechariah is a priest, a man who loves God and serves God. Elizabeth has a very respectable family line coming from the daughters of Aaron. They're both great people. They both love God. They both obey God. They walk blamelessly before God. Sounds like the perfect couple. But there's one problem. This couple... Doesn't have a child and back then that just was not an option that's just not what you did today it's not all that uncommon to meet people who are married and for various reasons they choose not to have children and that's all well and good but it just wasn't common in this time so when people looked at Zechariah when people looked at Elizabeth they probably had one big thing that came to their mind and the big thing was well You know, if they don't have kids, clearly they must have done something wrong. Clearly they must have messed up somehow. Clearly they must have not repented for some sin. Clearly they must have some hidden sin that God would leave them childless. And so you can imagine Elizabeth, this woman who strives to obey God, who loves God, and yet every single time she goes out in the marketplace, she sees the glares. ...of the people around her, wondering, why doesn't she have a kid? What did she do wrong? What is God punishing her for? She hears the whisper. She feels like a second-class citizen because of this. And she mourns for it. But it doesn't stay that way forever. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Zechariah goes into the temple to serve the way that was common to do. Verse 11 And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This baby that this angel, Gabriel, tells Zechariah about is not just going to be your ordinary baby. John is not going to be your ordinary guy, and this seems to go along with the story of Scripture. In other stories where a baby is born to a barren woman, the baby always ends up doing something special. You look at Isaac born to Abraham and Sarah. They were old. They never would have expected to have a baby, and yet God gives them Isaac. And he becomes one of the forefathers of God's people. You look at Samson, the famous judge who killed all of the Philistines with a donkey's jawbone and had the long hair that if you cut it off, he would lose his power. All that crazy story we read in the book of Judges. He was born to a barren woman. You look at Samuel, the prophet who would anoint King David, the greatest king that Israel had known. He was born to a barren woman. The trend would continue with John the Baptist. He would not just be an ordinary baby. He would fulfill the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 that Joshua talked about last week. The first half of that verse. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Look at Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi was the last book in the Old Testament written. So, that hadn't been fulfilled yet, but it's being fulfilled in the birth of John. Well, it's even more important is that as special as John is, as important as John is, he's just a preview of the real show that's coming next. He's just preparing the way. He's just making paths straight for the real announcement that God is sending. And that announcement will be Jesus. Jump forward to verse 11. I'm sorry, not verse 11, verse 24 of Luke chapter 1. After Zechariah gets this message from Gabriel, he's confused. He doesn't understand how this could be possible. His wife is old. He's old. And gabriel i got to feel bad for Zechariah here— Gabriel punishes Zechariah by making him deaf and mute until the baby is born, which that's a problem, especially if you're pregnant, because if Elizabeth wanted Zechariah to make a run to Baskin-Robbins because she's pregnant— Then Zechariah didn't hear her, but he is deaf and mute because he didn't have faith. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The stigma that Elizabeth had dealt with, the glares that she had seen, the whispers that she had heard, from people wondering why she didn't have a baby, those were all gone. Elizabeth must consider herself blessed. She must consider herself privileged. She must truly understand what it means for God to show her grace through this event. But if you want to know someone who's even more blown away by what God is doing, jump forward to chapter 1, verse 26. Here we see our next two characters of the story that we're reading. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, the same angel that went to Zechariah, was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. When you read that passage, Mary is probably about 14 years old when this is happening. She is very much a young girl. By our standards, she's betrothed to Joseph, which is basically being engaged. She's probably going to marry Joseph within the next year, but she is truly young. And she gets this message from Gabriel. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You think John's going to be something special. Wait till you see Jesus. He is greater than John, far greater than John. And his birth is going to be even stranger and even more miraculous than John's is. But he has quite the future ahead of him, according to Gabriel. His kingdom will rule forever. He will rule forever. He fulfills the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read in that passage verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a pretty bold promise given to david and yet if you're david you might be thinking that promise was unfulfilled because david would die his son solomon he'd be a great king he'd have a very good kingdom a very good reign but eventually solomon would die too eventually the throne would be torn down the temple would be destroyed the people would be exiled if this is god's idea of the kingdom reigning forever then God has a pretty messed up idea. Unless there's something more. Unless the prophecy hasn't quite been fulfilled yet. And that's the case. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's the one that will come from the line of David. He's the one whose kingdom will rule forever. He's the one whose throne will never be torn down. If you think John is special... Wait till you see Jesus. Now, Mary has some confusion as well. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now put yourself in Mary's sandals. On the one hand, you might be a little bit flattered. You might feel that it is a huge privilege to give birth to Jesus, to know that you're going to be the mother of this king from David's line who's going to rule forever and be in charge and be called the son of God. It might sound flattering. It might sound like a great honor. But at the same time, Mary's also finding herself in a pretty difficult situation. How is she going to tell Joseph this? Is she going to go to Joseph and say, hey, baby, um, here's some news. Um, turns out I'm pregnant, but don't worry, I'm still a virgin. It's all good. So what do you say? Let's, let's just keep going. What do, you, what do you think? If you're Joseph, you're probably thinking, now, wait a minute, this does not seem to add up. I don't think this is really going to work here, Mary. And then not to mention, think about the other things that Mary has to deal with. In her day, for her to be pregnant out of wedlock... The best-case scenario is that Joseph leaves her, maybe tries to be quiet about it, doesn't punish her, doesn't hold a grudge against her. That's the best-case scenario. The worst-case scenario is that Joseph makes a public scene about it, and she becomes a total laughingstock and a total disgrace for her unfaithfulness. You know, we have a lot of thoughts about Mary. Some churches and traditions teach that Mary was divine, that she was somehow sinless. That simply isn't in the Bible. Some teach that if you pray to Mary, that she will somehow improve your chances of your prayer being answered because she'll put in a good word for you to God. That simply isn't in the Bible. But what is in the Bible is that Mary is a girl just like a lot of us, not anything special, going on about her life, trying to be the kind of person God would have her be. And yet God comes to her and puts her in an absolutely extraordinary set of circumstances. And what does she do? Does she complain? Does she whine? Does she cry about it? No. She says, you know what, God, in spite of the kind of circumstances you're putting me in, in spite of the kind of awkward situation that you're putting me in with Joseph and with the people around me, You know what? I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, to your word. Wow. Think about that humility. Think about that trust that Mary shows. Mary has a lot in common with us. But at the same time, she shows faith that many of us can't believe, can't even fathom having that kind of faith. But she still has to talk to Joseph. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. We read in that passage, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You can't really blame Joseph. Put yourself in his situation. You're probably going to do the same thing. If anything, it shows some level of respect and honor on his part that he's going to do it quietly. He's not going to embarrass her. He's not going to throw her under the bus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph shows just as much faith as Mary does. It would have been easy for Joseph to say, no way. I'm not getting messed up in this. I'm just a regular old guy. I just want to go about my life. I just want to live a normal life. I don't want to be involved in this mess. This just seems a little bit crazy to me. But when Joseph hears from God, he has an attitude that's a lot like Mary's. Okay, this may be awkward. It may be strange. It may be hard to explain to our families at Thanksgiving, but... If this is what God wants to do with us, then so be it. If this is what God has planned and God wants me to be a part of it, all right, I'm in. Talk about faith. Talk about trust from Mary and from Joseph. It's the kind of trust and the kind of faith that I believe every single one of us should strive to have every single day. If you go forward to our next slide, a man named Ben Witherington III wrote this about Mary in his book, What Have They Done With Jesus? Her response to this is simple and direct, the words of an obedient and trusting follower of God's will. Luke portrays her as the paradigm of a disciple, coping well with even difficult and potentially life-threatening news. The paradigm of a disciple. The kind of person who says, no matter what kind of circumstances God puts me in, I'll go along with it. I'm in. If this is what you want me to do, God, then I'll do it. How does that affect our lives? How does it affect our finances? How does it affect our work? How does it affect our school? How does it affect our career choices? If we believe God is telling us to do something, if scripture tells us to do something, I pray that we will have the same response that Mary has, that Joseph has, that no matter how impractical it seems to be, no matter how strange and ridiculous it seems to be, that we'll simply do it, that we'll be disciples. It really is that simple sometimes. Sometimes we like to oversimplify the difficult things, and we like to over-difficult the simple things. Well... Mary is an example of simple discipleship. God tells her something, she trusts, and says okay. I pray that we can be like her. So as we leave this morning, I have challenges for two groups of people here. If you're in group one, which is people who maybe aren't sure about following jesus maybe you don't believe this stuff maybe you got dragged here by a family member because you were in town for thanksgiving my challenge to you would be to read the story just read what it says because this event if it's true it's too important for you to be apathetic about it it's too important for you to not have some kind of stand about it something you believe about it So my challenge to you is that you will read it, that you will reflect on it, that you'll come back next week and the week after that and the week after that and hear more about what this means for you and for me and for every single one of us, because this story has an eternal impact on everyone. And if you're a follower of Christ, my challenge to you would then be, look at Mary, look at Joseph, look at the faith that they had. I pray that we can have that kind of faith as well. We will probably never find ourselves in the circumstances they found themselves in. But we will find ourselves in situations where it seems impractical, where it seems completely ridiculous, where it seems completely illogical to do the kind of thing that God is calling us to do. Yet, will we have the kind of faith to do it? I pray that you'll come back in the coming weeks as we read the story together, as we see the development of these characters and see just how huge this event is in every single one of our lives 2,000 years later. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son, Jesus. God, I can't imagine being Joseph I can't imagine being in Mary's shoes, hearing what they're hearing, being put in the kind of situation they're being put in, but God, their response truly is amazing. And God, I pray this Christmas season that we will not take that for granted. We hear the stories so much. We see the nativity scenes. We see the veggie tales in the cartoon movies, and we sometimes water down and sanitize just how big a deal this event is. I pray that we won't take it for granted. I pray that we'll never tell ourselves that we've heard the story enough, that we know it already, God. I pray that we will be looking into this story, be looking into your word every single day, striving to be challenged and changed and notice things we never noticed before. God, I pray that those who don't know you this Christmas season might read this story, might take it seriously, that they would reflect on it, consider it, think about what this means, and that people might come to know you. God, we love you. We can't thank you enough for sending Jesus, God in the flesh, born of a virgin, who would eventually die for our sins. God, this baby was not just your ordinary baby. This baby had a future, this baby had a destiny, but. It It's not the kind of destiny that most of us would want for our own children. But he did it for us. From day one, there was a cross with his name on it. And he died on that cross for me and for everyone else here. I pray that we will always remember that. That we'll always take it to heart. That we won't forget that this Christmas season. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, one of our elders will be standing at the sides of the room. Feel free to talk to them about what it means to place your faith in Christ this morning, to become a follower of God's Son. Also, feel free to talk to them if you have prayer requests, if you have questions about our church, or if there's anything else that we can pray for you about or serve you.